Listening to Real Talk SLP with your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. This is a show to help speech pathologists navigate the SLP world with real life stories to celebrate therapy successes and how to persevere when failure comes knocking on your door. Hey there, Rockstar SLP. So we are in April. We're in April, guys. <laughs> But it's a really fun month for a lot of reasons. Um, Spring is starting to come, and it's also Autism Acceptance Month. And during this month, I like to just kind of celebrate um, the the students that I've worked with, the people that I know that are autistic that that have touched my life and been a part of my life and helped me grow as a person and as a clinician. And it's also just a time where I take some reflection of, you know, what it means to work with autistic students and all the students that we work with really, but specifically autistic students this month. And I thought I would do an episode where I shared five things that I've learned from my autistic students. So I have worked with autistic children when I was in grad school. And then just throughout my career, I've had just a lot of different settings and and different students that I've had the privilege of serving. And as much as, um, you know, I've given my heart and my, my, my skills to them, they have given me so much value and, um, touched my life in such positive ways. And they've helped change you know, they've helped me see different, see things differently in the way that I practice. And so this is, you know, in honor of them that, that they have helped me be a better SLP. And I wanted to share the, those takeaways with you because if you feel like you're not, you know, you're struggling with how to serve this population well, um, or you're feeling overwhelmed because we juggle so many things, I wanted to share some things that I learned that helped me support my autistic students better. And hopefully this this will help you to do that as well. And so before we jump into that, I wanted to let you know about a free lesson plan guide. I'm sure you are just overwhelmed <laughs> with all the meetings. They always seem to happen like right after spring break or May gets crazy. It's like one of the months, it's either April is out of control or May or both, all of them all the months. Um, And so I know you're probably doing a lot of assessments, you're doing a lot of IEP meetings, and you don't have time to plan or come up with something fun and engaging for your students. So if you need a free language lesson plan guide that you can use with your small groups and your co-teaching, like when you go into the classroom to do a push-in lesson, I want to let you know that there is a free language lesson plan guide on my website. I will put that link in the show notes so that you can get to it, but it has everything you need to do different stations. It has a Google slide presentation, book recommendations, ideas for setting things up and and ways to use those plastic eggs (laughs) in a different way. 
Um, you don't have to do Easter egg hunts. You can do a chicken hatching hunt. So make sure to go get that. It will definitely help you with planning. You'll, you'll be excited. The kids will be engaged. If you do use the activity, feel free to take a picture and tag me on social media on Instagram at the dabbling speechy, because I love seeing how SLPs are using, um, the resources I create to serve their students. And it, it always keeps me inspired. And so I hope you guys are staying inspired with that little gift for you. I know I want it to, I want you to, you know, it's, it stinks sometimes when you have so much paperwork and things to do and you just want to go have fun and teach your students, right? You want to do fun, engaging lessons and you don't always have time. So this hopefully will alleviate that. Now let's jump in to the five things I have learned from my autistic students. And so first up is functional communication is more important than academic skills. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous to say that because some people may not agree with me. Um, and you may even get some pushback even from parents or uh, teachers. But what I you know, I think I knew this before that functional communication was so valuable, but I really started to see this happen when I started serving. Um, my my caseload changed a little bit where the, they put new self-contained classrooms. And so a lot of the students in the class were, you know, some were verbally communicating, others were non-speaking, or they were somewhat verbal, but then they also used other modes of communication. And so we were trying to figure out what to do. And at the time, you know, PECS was often, you know, a go-to resource. And as I started taking some training, because I was going, you know what, there has to be a better way because I am not getting a lot of carryover by just working on requesting. I was totally guilty of that. Just working on, I want, I want, I want this, I want that. And there is nothing wrong with teaching that because how often do we really want to tell someone what we want all the time? It's a, it's a wonderful communication skill that we need and our students need. But what I slowly started to realize as I was doing more um, AAC professional development and just watching my students sometimes having meltdowns because they couldn't tell um, their teachers or their friends or me, what they wanted was that functional communication was so important um, for them to be able to say, I don't want to do this. Help me. Hi, I like it. You know, show your, I love you. You're showing affection. All of those functions of communication are so important. And I realized even more how much I you know, I took, I take for granted how easily I can complain. I can, you know, express excitement, um, with my words and, and that we need to really be teaching our children, our students ways that they can communicate outside of just requesting. And then also just ways that we can find opportunities for them to communicate their thoughts and feelings and giving them that space and providing other ways, modes of communication so they can do that. That if they aren't able to share it with words that we have some other system in place for them, like an AAC device or a core board and, and really trying to meet their needs so that they can functionally communication. Academic skills are totally, totally important. But at the end of the day, when we cannot communicate um, how, you know, different feelings, thoughts, 
greetings, emotions, that's going to impact their social interactions. It's going to impact their job skills and their ability to get a job. And so it was so it's to me that that really was a light bulb moment when I discovered how much I could work and model um, functional communication for my students just with a core board. You know, I had other kids that had some AAC devices, but the power of the core board and being able to model more than just I want was was life-changing because I saw how kids started to use novel utterances. And um, that was when I'd be like, this was a good day when I heard a kid say something spontaneous and novel that was unprompted. And, 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 and you'll, and that, and that's a great place to start. If you go in and watch your students in the classroom and out at the recess, and even, you know, I've even asked parents this too, like, how does your child communicate when nobody is prompting him, when nobody's telling him, you know, prompting him, pointing to pictures or holding something up? Like, how does this, how does your child communicate? And you'll easily be able to, you'll be able to find areas where they maybe are you know, for greetings, they're maybe going up to the staff and just hugging them. And then how can we create some opportunities for them to be able to, you know, verbally say, how are you? Good morning, or use their AAC device. And so you want to look and see how are they communicating? How are they showing affection? How are they showing people that they like something? And maybe they aren't verbally saying it out loud, but they smiled. And so that's where you go, okay, I have a starting point. They have likes and dislikes. Let's see how we can, when can we talk about that? When can we give them, you know, some some modeling and opportunities to talk about things that they like and don't like? And, and so it, I really started to see things more clearly with the power of functional communication and how much it needs to be part of the therapy uh, model when we are coming up with goals and when we're coming up with activities to work on. And so that's that's number one. Functional communication is more important than academic skills. Like it's something we got to work on as a team. Um, number two, share what your students can do. Share what your students can do with the team rather than always focusing on what they can't do. Now, I, I'll tell you this. Um, I know in my intentions for focusing on what my students can't do was always a place of going, okay, how can we help improve their skills or how can we help support them? But what I realized, especially when I was doing assessments where there was a lot of complex communication needs and looking at all the language domains and seeing like there's a there's there's areas of need in all these language domains realizing that just doing standardized assessments wasn't going to be enough and even after that I a lot of times I really would do some informal observations and I would do some other informal assessments and rating skills and trying to, you know, figure out the areas of need and the strengths. But what I found too, is that I struggled with remembering that we need to share what they can do more than what they can't do. And, and I always did share strengths because that's the first part of the IEP. So it wasn't like I was missing that point, but it, but when I was coming up with goals and coming up with, um, what, 
to work, you know, what to work on or tell the parents what they could do and not do. I really, I really was struggling with remembering that it's, we got to, we got to show them what they can do. And I'll give you an example. So I had a couple of students where I would, I did their assessments and I did some informal assessment and I did, you know, observations and yes, on paper, I'm going, okay, um, out of five trials, (laughs) they could not name category groups. Okay. When they were shown a picture, they could not tell me what, what the person was doing, you know, and you're, so you're get you're sitting here going zero out of five, zero out of five, following, following directions with basic concepts, you know, in and out zero out of five or one out of five. And so that didn't tell me a lot, right. That told me what they, what they couldn't do. So I knew, okay, they, they're struck. They don't have the skill at all. And I had to go back and backward chain some of these skills so that I could figure out what they could do because they can do stuff, you know, they, they are, they have lots of talents, but it's hard sometimes to, you know, be able to quantify and pinpoint um, what they're able to do with that in that language domain. And so when I had a student who was not able to tell me what the person was doing in the photos. I then took it back a step and I had a field of three pictures and I would say, touch the boy who is eating. Um, And then if they struggled with that still, maybe they got 40%. I was like, okay, let's try a field of two or let's try matching. Can they match the correct picture for an action? And so when I started to look at things around what they can do, I could still tell the team and the parents, hey, you know what, they are not, they're struggling with um, understanding verbs. They're not expressively using verbs and they're still learning how, you know, understanding different verbs. And so where they're at with that skill is they're able to sort verb actions into a field of three, or they are able to touch the correct action when I have three pictures out. When I take those pictures away, that's where they, they struggle. So what we're going to do is we're going to really focus on that understanding piece. And, and so then you're able to write better goals, goals that match that baseline, goals that are achievable. And you're able to also show the parents, my, your child's making progress, which isn't that what we all want? We want that the parents want that and they want to know how they're making progress. It makes them feel like they can trust the team more. And so I really started doing that and um, it really helped change my mindset too that, you know, my, my students, all my students, but particularly my autistic students are making growth and gains all the time, even when we can't see it. And that has happened to me time and time again, where I would feel like I'm not doing enough or I'm not doing it right, or I'm not seeing the growth I want to see. And then one day I walk into the classroom and half the class goes, Mrs. Clark. And they called me by name where before when I'd walk in the room, they, they barely acknowledged I was there. And those are the things that they can do. And we need to remember those more and more than what's on the paper sometimes, that data paper, right? All right. So number three, okay. It takes a team to support autistic students well. It takes a team to support any student really. But when it comes to some of our autistic students, we need all parties involved, right? We need the parents. We need 
the OTs. We need the teachers and the instructional aides and us to serve them well and to, to implement their IEP. So we need to involve them. Um, you know, my, my co-teaching journey started because of seeing a need where I knew I saw like I could make progress with the student, pulling them out of my class, you know, pulling them out of class and having, having speech with them in a small group. But there were certain goals and certain areas of need that I'm going, I need to get the team involved. If the teacher knew the, the vocabulary that I used and the concepts that I was using for their social pragmatic goal or for their language goal, they could be doing this in the classroom when I'm not there. Because once a week, working on these skills is not going to be enough trials and enough natural opportunities than if I was to help train and work alongside the instructional aides and the teachers and other people on staff even. How how cool would it be if you could coach the lunch worker to how to greet and talk to some of your students when they're picking up their lunch, right? So it's, you know, I think it's hard sometimes to think outside the box, but I am a big fan of collaborative services. If you've been following me for some time, I've got lots of podcast episodes and blog posts on the topic because I believe it can work if you take the time to do it and to take the the steps and make the, make the time to invest in this long-term goal. You're not going to see short-term gains with collaborative services all the time. It's a long-term process and 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 that's what's hard about it sometimes. And I think we also get in this mindset because we all have Medicaid billing and and people telling us we have to take data, take data, data, data. And so when you're thinking like, well, if I go and co-teach in the classroom, how am I going to get data, right? And that's a big thing for us. Um, it's a roadblock because I have seen so much growth by involving the classroom staff in my co-teaching lessons. They they run a station that I have helped plan or I'll plan it and they run it. I run my station, they run the station, but it all aligns with the main co-teaching theme or lesson that we that I've talked with the teacher about. And so if you want more about collaborative services, um, I can link some of the previous uh, podcast episodes for you to go listen to. You definitely can search thedabblingspeechy.com for collaborative services or reach out to me on Instagram with specific questions because this is my jam area. And I, I've, seen the, I've seen the growth that has happened when I have involved my team and, and collaborated. It, it's, it's been it's been so much fun because I don't have to go at things alone. And it's been so cool when I do see kids making gains that I know I couldn't have done on my own. So that is my third takeaway for you guys. It takes a team to support autistic students. So get them involved. Now, lesson number four that I've learned from my students is they have passions and interests you know, sometimes very specific passions and interests. And so why are we going to throw those out the door because they love those things, right? Um, I think all of our students that we work with have specific interests and passions and that's what motivates them and that's what makes them unique. And so this, this tip goes for everybody on your caseload, but particularly with our autistic students, the more that we can find what 
inspires them to communicate and to want to be a part of relationships and, and learn and grow in their language, the better our sessions are going to go. You know, trying to get rid of what they're really into can sometimes be a hindrance because then they're going to have some, you know, protests and they're not going to want to work with you. So, you know, for example, I had one friend who really loved trolls. And so what I would do is I'd say, okay, first we're going to do our group activity. And then at the end, you can show me a troll song on YouTube. Or if you're working with a child and you're doing trying to do some, a theme activity and they're not feeling it, maybe bring in the thing, the toy that they really like. If they're super into Peppa Pig, we'll have Peppa Pig go on a picnic, have Peppa Pig go on a bug hunt. Um, if they love dinosaurs, have the dinosaurs come and crash the town. <laughs> right. So, and if they love, you know, Minecraft and all that stuff incorporated, I know nothing about Minecraft, so they definitely could tell me everything. That's the beauty of not knowing some of these things. They can, they can, give me all their knowledge and it would work out really well. And so think about how could you cover their goals with the passions and interests that they have and how could you help them find other friends and other peers that have similar interests or that would like to learn about those interests? Um, because then you can maybe start a lunch bunch or start some, you know, facilitate some, some fun play on the playground. All right. And the last thing, number five, the last thing that I've learned from my autistic students is just because they didn't like a toy or activity when you tried the first time doesn't mean you can't reintroduce it in the future sessions. So just because your students, you know, didn't want the toy or the activity that you presented doesn't mean you just have to let it go. Like you're like, oh, I guess we can't do that again. Um, you know, sometimes our students, and this is every student on our caseload, but sometimes our students either they ha they're still um, acquiring some skills, they got to improve in their joint attention, maybe their sensory system was dysregulated, and they couldn't focus on the activity to see how it could be something that they would want to engage with, or their attention, you know, like I said, their attention span, their regulation system and their attention span is so limited that they weren't able to attend to the activity or they didn't, they hadn't had enough time to explore the toy to see how cool it was because we immediately put demands on them like, oh, see the popper toy? Say what? You know, I mean, I've jumped into sessions where I'm like, okay, let's work, 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 you know, and we didn't give them that time to just interact and engage with us and play with the toy or the activity before they saw like, oh, this is really fun. This is really fun. And I think sometimes, you know, I think for myself personally, as a clinician, there's this pressure that we have to get enough trials in because we only see our students for a certain amount of time. Um, we have to have data on how they did. So we're always like, okay, produce, produce, produce. And we forget that sometimes our students need that time to explore the toy, to explore the activity, um, or their sensory system needs to be regulated. And this one particular student, I'll tell you about this, and then we'll we'll head on out with this with this episode. Was he had a really limited um, 
attention span. His joint attention skills were fleeting and he just was always touching and just moving and, and doing a lot of echolalia. And he was just not always focused on the activity. Like it wasn't always of interest. Um, and so I talked with the OT about, um, you know, what I could do. And I talked with his instructional aide that came with me and we decided to incorporate some heavy work before we got to the speech room. So I came to his classroom and I put books in a backpack and I had him carry the books to the playground. And then he had to climb up and go down the slide. And then he came to my room and he pushed me in my rolling chair. And then we sat down and we read the book and did like, I I brought out a doggy toy. I kept bringing out this doggy toy and some bones that went with my book that I wanted to read. And he was slowly, as we continued doing that, he was slowly able to pay attention more. And he started to really like the doggy toy house. But the first few sessions when I tried to bring it out, he just wasn't into it. And so it reminded me, and I've seen this with other kids too, where I will think, oh, they don't like that toy. I guess I'll never get to do that again with them. And it just sometimes just takes some time and reintroduce it and see if they're interested that day, you know? So, cause it is disappointing when you have like a lesson plan set up and you're like, I think this is going to be really fun. I think they're going to love it. They're going to totally be engaged. And then it's a total flop and, or you had a, a few sessions before a particular group and all the students are like, this is so much fun. And they're, you know, and they're talking and you're, you're like, wow, I really, this was a really great lesson. And then you get to, um, and you're like, I think this one student's going to really like it. And then you get to that student's session or group and you're like, well, they didn't like it. Okay. I don't know what to do now. I don't got anything else planned. (laughs) And so that's where, you know, that's my last tip is like, just because they don't like a toy or activity doesn't mean you can't reintroduce it. And to get to the heart of what could be impacting their ability to pay attention and what could be, what could you do differently to set up the lesson? What could you do to help with their attention span? Could you bring in a beanbag chair while they're reading the book with you? Um, Can you, you know, little ways that you can change things up to see if that helps with their attention span and their interest, or they may not be interested in it, but you can still try again, right? So I hope that this episode was um, helpful and, you know, I would love to, if you have any reflections of your own, please feel free to reach out to me on social media, or you can email me Felice Clark at the dabbling I would love to hear your takeaways because it always helps um, me become a better SLP when I hear about other people's experiences and expertise. So as always, SLPs be the SLP that every kid wants to see. And don't forget to stay inspired and have a great week. All right. Talk with you soon. Oh, uh-huh.